electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. Happy New Year. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Rising rates are pressuring stocks again and putting that historic win streak in jeopardy. The 10-year yield briefly back above 4% this morning. And our strategist says higher for longer is still very much in play. Will rates spoil the party in 2024? And if so, why is crypto shrugging it off today? We'll debate. Meanwhile, rising tensions in the Red Sea pushing oil prices higher overnight. Shipping giant Maersk says they'll continue to avoid the area. Are we on the brink of a multi-front war in the Middle East? Atlanta Council CEO Fred Kemp weighs in. Plus, Barclays downgrading Apple to sell. It's now the fourth firm with a bearish rating. We'll tell you why as the stock drags on the whole tech sector today. But first, let's start with the market action. And Dom Chu has the numbers. Hi, Dom. Hi. Happy New Year, Kelly. Decidedly more negative for certain parts of the market than others. But the down parts of the market to the real downside are the leaders from 2023. So specifically the Nasdaq Composite, which was the outperformer among the major three indices, The composite index at 14,770, down 240 points, 1.6% to the downside there. So again, tech, comm services, really the laggard so far today. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 is down about 25 points, one half of 1%. Those technology stocks weigh there as well, but it's generally a little bit less severe here for the S&P 500. And by the way, we're right in the middle of the trading range so far today. And the Dow Industrial is outperforming up about one quarter of 1%, 65 points to the upside, 37,755. The key mover in the S&P 500 today has been one of the biggest underperformers over the course of the past year. We're talking about biotechnology firm Moderna, most known for their COVID vaccines, mRNA technology. Well, it's up 14 percent today, making it by a factor of almost three the best performing stock in the S&P 500 after analysts at Oppenheimer upgraded that stock put another price target upgrade on that thing, saying that basically COVID vaccine sales are showing more visibility down the line and more products coming out in the next few years will help Moderna's bottom line. So Moderna's shares up 14%. But remember, on a one-year basis, still down about 37%. And then the interest rates that Kelly mentioned, it's important to kind of show you some context on where we've been, where we are right now. The 10-year note yield currently at 3.95%. As Kelly mentioned, we briefly ticked above 3.4% at some point. But remember, the cycle high is up here, 5%. We've been on a pretty decent downtrend ever since. So even with this move, though, it's still a rates-driven story for 2024, just like it was in 2023. We'll see if the Fed, and when it cuts, becomes a huger issue down the line. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Dominic Chu, stocks are sitting on huge gains on expectations of deep rate cuts this year, but my next guests say the Fed may not be as aggressive as investors think. Joining me now, Greg Dacco is chief economist at EY, and Jordy Visser is president and chief investment officer at Weiss Multi-Strategy Advisors. Welcome to both of you. Jordy, welcome to the program. Thanks, Kelly. I, I don't want to jump too far ahead here, but I know that you're a big fan of Bitcoin and crypto and some of those <laughs> asset classes, and this is definitely the day to talk about it. Before that, though, maybe just explain why you don't think the fact that the 10-year went back above 4% today 
has, I mean, why is that happening at the same time that crypto's taking off or are these just kind of January one positioning quirks? I, I think most of what's happening today has to do with a lack of volume coming into the new year and just position shifts. I think people are going to break away from the correlations they've had in the past with crypto and rates. And I think in general, after we've had two years of just major surprises in rates, I think people are trying to maybe get a little too over their skis in terms of rate moves being connected back to their assets. So just to make sure I understand that, you know, we've, I don't know how we've thought about it. I guess we've thought, okay, low rates, negative real rates are a positive for Bitcoin and the reverse is true. But do you think you see a different relationship forming from here on out? Yeah, I think this is the year, and I've written about this, that people start to think of Bitcoin differently, um, partly as just an investment asset that's being embraced by younger people and not so much by people my age. Uh, that's changing drastically, and I think we've seen the numbers. So there's a lot of different reasons why all of a sudden now Bitcoin's going to change as an asset, but also there's an innovation component. And I think last year we talked about artificial intelligence as the major innovation mm -hmm. theme. Artificial intelligence is directly correlated, in my opinion, to the success of Bitcoin going forward. So they kind of are going to rise hand in hand. I think authenticity is going to break down on one side, meaning more fakes, more AI impacting sure. the way that we see things. And the blockchain, which is the technology attached to Bitcoin, is going to continue to grow for a variety of different reasons. Healthcare is one of them. Uh, but I think in general this year, people will embrace more the way that Bitcoin is being viewed as an innovation. Or almost like the trustworthiness aspect of it in, in some ways, shape or form. That's exactly the, it. The flip side of that. Greg, let's talk a little bit while we were talking about rates in, in relation to Bitcoin, but let's talk about where they're going in general. You know, the fact that we've already moved from below 380 to over 4% today, are we undoing the, the low volume move of last week or is today, the, which one's the counter trend? Well, I think we're all going to be in a, an environment where the Fed is going to be cutting rates uh, over the course of this year, but perhaps some of the market euphoria is a little bit overdone. Uh, we have to remember that the Fed is going to be cutting rates as a function of inflation, and inflation bumpiness is likely to be part of the process as we move through the rest of the year. So yes, we've made a lot of progress. We've had some very encouraging inflationary prints over the course of the last few months, but the bumpiness is likely to put the Fed on a little bit of a hold pattern in the initial part of this year. And I think markets pricing very rapid and aggressive rate cuts early this year, maybe a little bit over their skis in terms of expectations for what the Fed is actually going to be doing. You know, I was getting more curious about uh, what could happen with the CPI in the next few months, Greg, because I was looking at the I-bonds again over the weekend and thinking, okay, the floating rate is down to, I think it's a little under 4% now. Um, do you think, and the, the early reads for January uh, inflation data look pretty low. So is there a rationale? Is it your expectation that, pick the CPI, if you will, that it backs mm -hmm. up a little bit in the months to come? I think there's a, a real possibility that we see some upward movement uh, in the coming months in terms of inflation data. Nothing dramatic, maybe a tenth or a couple of tenths, nothing really worrisome. The disinflationary tailwinds are still very much with us. We have an environment in which economic activity is gradually moderating. We have wage growth that is moderating. We have profit margins that are compressing. We have rent disinflation in the pipeline. Right. Let's not forget the Fed is still maintaining a hawkish and 
quite aggressive monetary policy stance, has not yet started to cut rates. Yes, we are seeing some of that expected easing in long-term rates, as you were just discussing, but that has yet to materialize. So we're still in a disinflationary environment. It's going to be bumpy on the way down, just like it was bumpy on the way up. And the Fed is going to mechanically react to the easing of inflation and not essentially pre-commit uh, to rate cuts until we are sustainably on that path to 2% inflation. But I, it sounds like you're saying you're still on board with everyone else in this idea that, that rates are going lower and they're going to do cuts. Maybe it's just you know not quite in March. Jordy, why do you think that they might not do as many cuts as expected this year? Well, I think the biggest thing that people have missed the last couple of years as a story that continues to be one is the labor shortage. And wages remain higher than where you would want them to be if you believe inflation is going to head back to 2%. So no matter where you, you look on the wage side, and we just had the NFIB come out, and they're raising compensation levels in terms of the percentage of companies just jump back up to around the highs of the last two years. That has a good correlation between the median, the Fed median wage uh, component. And I just think that wages are going to remain sticky. At the same time, we just added 40 plus trillion dollars of household net worth over the last four years. And I think last year in particular, people underestimated that. They kept talking about savings coming down. And the reality is we have household net worth that's exploded. And over the next four years, one of the big things that people are going to have to acknowledge, most of the household net worth in the country is owned by people, baby boomers and higher in terms mm -hmm. of age, about 65 percent of the household net worth. We're starting to have that wealth transfer that people have expected and have talked about. That's going to keep a bid into the service side, in my opinion. So we talk about inflation coming down, but core service is still higher than where the Fed would want it. And I think that's where the surprises are going to be, is that the core service side is going to remain on the higher side because of household net worth being mm -hmm. so strong and wages being strong. You know, I think that's interesting. And it, I also find it noteworthy that Goldman Sachs, which has been amongst the more bullish forecasters about the labor market, all the things you're describing, are still out there as the most dovish this year, expecting these Fed rate cuts. And maybe it's it's just the point that Greg was just making. It's a mechanical thing, right? Even if the economy holds up, if inflation comes down, they still probably should be easing just to make sure they're not tightening implicitly. Yeah, and I, I, I think Goldman responded recently to the commentary that came out of the most recent Fed meeting. Well, that can change too. So I think that this year is going to be very different than the years past. We've been kind of in this momentum thing of first rate hikes. Then gradually people were looking for the recession. That's gotten pushed out. And I think now for this year, the surprise will be we have a lot of easing built into the market with stocks at all-time high, house prices at all-time highs, and wages still growing. So I, I definitely think the surprise coming into this, where the sentiment is almost the opposite of where it started last year, totally. is that inflation might surprise a little bit more on the high side this year. The spoil sport. Leave it there, <laughs> gentlemen. Thanks, Jordy Visser. Greg Daco. we appreciate it today. Let's pivot now to the Middle East. Oil was up nearly 3% earlier on news that Iran dispatched a warship to the Red Sea. This was after the U.S. Navy destroyed three boats of Iran-backed Houthi rebels, killing 10 militants, according to the AP. Shipping company Maersk now saying they'll pause, continue to pause all transit through the Red Sea until further notice. And meanwhile, tensions between Israel and Lebanon are on the rise after an explosion reportedly killed the deputy head of Hamas. For more here, let's bring in Fred Kemp. He's president and CEO of the Atlantic Council and a CNBC contributor. And Fred, I guess this is the larger concern is that we start talking about kind of a multifaceted Middle East uh, war or series of conflicts. 
Uh, yes. I ha look, Happy New Year, Kelly. Um, people have been worried about an expanding war, but what this is also confronting uh, U.S. officials, Biden administration officials with, is that they're not going to be able to avoid the fact that Iran is behind almost everything in one way or another. Uh, there is no October 7th Hamas attack without the support of Iran. Uh, there are no attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, support of the Houthis without Iranian weapons and without Iranian backing. Uh, you talked about Lebanon, the threat in Lebanon. That doesn't happen without the proxy, uh, Iran's proxy, Hezbollah in Lebanon. And so uh, the real question is, how do you get to Iran over time? Because without getting to Iran, you're not going to solve all the rest of these problems. And I think that's the that's the really tricky thing that pe people are looking at. And of course, there's short term and there's long term in that. And, right. Uh, yeah. What is the Biden administration's strategy here as it relates to Iran? And, and the, the, the escalation of tensions now, How what does that tell you might be going on behind the scenes? Yeah, I've been talking to people in the White House over the last couple of weeks, uh, and they've laid out quite a complex agenda for the entire year. It's a, it's a pretty complex year with wars in the Middle East and, and Europe and tensions with China. What they want in the Middle East is for things not to escalate and to, uh, and to put uh, the situation in such a place where they might be able to start normalizing relations again between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, now, that may not seem directly linked to Iran, but the long-term play with Iran is if you can have the, the uh, Israel, the moderate modernizing uh, Arab states, uh, expanding their area of prosperity, of modernization, it makes the Iranian rot, the government rot, the corruption, uh, the slow growth, uh, the little that they're providing their people, makes that stand out even longer. Right. But that's the long game. The short game has to be how do you counter the Houthis and how do you counter Iran now? Did we have any further normalizations between Israel and Arab countries after or during this administration so far? No, what you've done is you've kept them alive. And so the Abraham Accords countries have kept this all alive. Uh, but uh, the administration had moved things forward uh, to the extent that one thought that a Saudi-Israeli normalization might have been possible in the first quarter, first half of this year. Right. That, of course, has been put on ice, but they haven't given up on it. Uh, what they need is they need Israel uh, to reach some sort of an agreement with pa the Palestinians over time that at least gives a path to the state so that they can return to a normalization path. I, I think overall they think that's the only way that one returns to a path that both counters Iran, supports Israel, and builds upon normalization in the region. Do you think that these sanctions on Iran previously were effective in curbing their activity throughout the region? And if so, should we expect a return to that? Uh, I, I don't think the talks with Iran did much at all for uh, Iran's regional misbehavior. That was their, that was the criticism against them. And we just heard from the head of the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency in December that uh, Iran has tripled its near weapons-grade uh, uranium uh, exactly. it's within days of being able to create a bomb. So not only are they creating all this havoc in the Middle East through this war, at the same time, in a global sense, they've become more dangerous, and they're clo growing closer to China. They're growing closer to uh, Russia, supporting Russia's uh, war in, in Ukraine. So all of this is uh, linked together, and the Biden administrations are saying that they're really starting now to connect the dots for, uh, among all these, uh, these seemingly disparate issues. Right. And does that all come back to heavy, heavy sanctions on Iran, though? Wouldn't that be the obvious next move in order to do what was done in the past to more or less try to bankrupt the regime? 
I think it's holding Iran to account for what its proxies are doing. And that has to mean new new sanctions, not just on the proxies, but on Iran. It has to be reimposing some of the previous sanctions. It probably means support again for domestic opposition. It means keeping the internet alive so people at home understand what's going on. Uh, but what it what it real, would really take is a sustained effort uh, with our friends and allies around the world of the sort that we haven't really undertaken with Iran. Interesting. Fred, thank you very much for joining us on the heels of these developments. We appreciate your time today. Thank you, Kelly. Fred Kemp with the Atlantic Council. Coming up, Bitcoin beginning the year by topping 45,000 and hitting a 20-month high. After surging more than 150% in 2023, could we see a repeat this year? Carter Worth joins us next with his bold new call on crypto, miners, and metals. And from Bitcoin to banking, will financials finally catch up this year after lagging the broader market? Or could we face a redux of the crises we saw last spring? Former Wells Fargo CEO Dick Kovacevic is here to weigh in on what 2024 might have in store. And as we head to break, here's a glance at the markets, which are hanging on to green territory for the Dow by 47 points. The S&P is down half a percent, though, and the Nasdaq's down 1.6 percent. We'll uh, explain what's going on with some of those tech names shortly. Ten-year yield back down to 394, still up considerably from last week. The exchange is back after this. that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. 2023 was the first positive year in three for gold. Prices are still sitting near their record high set in early December. And my next guest says the streak can continue, but he really likes the miners here as well. Joining us to check the charts is Carter Worth. He's the CEO of Worth Charting. Carter, it's good. I would expect someone like you to be poo-pooing the the miners trade. I'm surprised you're into it. Well, you know, I sometimes there's something that's so out of favor, so under-owned, you can use any sort of expression one wants, that it's right to, I think, take the road less traveled. Miners are perennial underperformers. In fact, just a, a statistic that's interesting, since the launch of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange Gold and uh, Silver Index in 1979, exactly 45 years ago, January 19th, 1979, um, gold miners have basically unchanged. I mean, which is shocking, obviously a tough business. But this is uh, my point. You know, it, yeah, well, it just sounds right. like it's a bad so, business that only fools right. would want to get I mean, involved you, you, with. You dig, you dig the deep hole. <laughs> dig that. Guys get trapped in the hole sometimes. A lot of bad stuff. But uh, but the point is, the spread right now with um, gold itself is pretty extreme. So we have gold making, and we think gold's going a lot higher, at least from our point of view. And so uh, at some point, again, you're talking about a fairly small asset class. Now, if you think of this, all stocks in the Philadelphia Gold and Silver Mining Index 
add up to about 296 billion. That's the same as one Costco. Hmm. Um, and so uh, they're largely a smid cap phenomenon. And if you see here on the screen, right on a 10 year basis, gold miners and gold bullion are dead even. But that first chart that was up, that shows going back on a 40 year basis that gold miners are basically uh, unchanged. So the situation I think is that not only the miners having lagged general equity market to a substantial end, they've lagged and so shown here, they've lagged the underlying metal. Is and this so at some point you do get these sort of pops or catch up trades. And I think that's what we're looking at. Uh, as an opportunity here in 2024. And having laid it out that way, I can't imagine this is anything. So do you have a price target in mind for getting out of this trade? Because it sounds like this is one of those maybe three, six, nine month opportunities and nothing that you'd be really interested for the long, long run. Right. And hard to know. But any long run thing, you got to start with three months, six months, and then you, you kind of stick with it if it's working hmm. and so forth. But but I, a GDX is the vehicle to use. Of course, that's the most liquid of all um, sort of uh, mining ETFs, and there are several. This is an interesting chart, not because I made it, but it's because it tells a story, right? This is a ratio chart. It's gold miners divided by the market, SPY, two ETFs. And so what we know is that um, the relative performance is poor, but we keep holding this level for about uh, almost 10 years. And I think that the word developmental is appropriate. This is curative healing. Uh, the arrow speaks for itself. Of course, that's a judgment, mine, but that's what I'm thinking. So quickly on gold itself, you know, being bullish on the miners, does that predicate, uh, or does that taken as a fact that gold itself has to also do pretty well this year? Yes, but also let's say gold just hangs where it is. Gold's at all-time highs. I mean, now, while it's not always a direct relationship or an inverse relationship, they do make their money, right, from gold bullion. And so the underlying commodity being as strong as it is, uh, that flows through. And for those who, obviously, this is getting into the fundamentals, gold, uh, but I mean, uh, fuel costs are a big part of this, and fuel costs are down substantially. For the miners. For the miners. Yes. So finally on Bitcoin, and this all, you are full of surprises today, and maybe I should have been paying more close attention, but having known some of the bearish or cautious discussions we've had about stocks, you're bullish on Bitcoin. Has that been true for some time, or is this a new development? Yeah, I don't, I, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on Bitcoin, to be fair, but I mean, if if asked, and we're talking about it now, uh, the, the chart, it's 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 okay. It's not so extended. Let me put maybe in context. People say, well, it's come so far. If you were to, and we can all agree that the low for the equity market on this intermediate period was October 27th, and we've had this huge rally into year end, and now here we are now. Uh, home builders up 45% since the October 27th low. Regional banks are up 45%. Bitcoin's up only 50 uh, <laughs> So, you know, for something that's high beta like this, yes, it's moved a lot. But since the October low on a three month basis, it's it's um, it's not that much. I, and this is going to be real wonky, but I was just looking at it over the weekend and it really feels like real rates reversed then in late October. I was looking at the 10 year tips yield, for instance. And I don't know, maybe the whole world hangs on what direction that goes next. And maybe it keeps going down. I don't know what happens if it rebounds a little bit. Right. I mean, so much is tied, uh, at least it's so much of the activity in the sort of back half of the uh, year was related to 
to rates. Uh, but again, relationships like this are not always inverse. For instance, with rates bumping up here, uh, you and the dollar bumping up, why is gold hanging in? Meaning, right. you know, these relationships are intact until they're not. Right. And same with Bitcoin. You know, all of that's the case this morning. Mm-hmm. And then here it is off to the races. Uh, we'll leave it to the chart yes. master. Carter, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Happy New Year. Carter Worth, you too. Coming up, a rare downgrade to underweight for the world's most valuable company. Why one analyst sees as much as 17 percent downside on Apple shares over the next year. That's ahead with the stock having its worst day since August. But first, Rivian shares plunging 10 percent to start the year after their 40 percent rally in December. We'll tell you what's behind the move and what led analysts to say that year-end search happened in the first place. We're back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. 62-point gain for the Dow at the lows. We were down almost 200, so that's quite a turnaround. Although the S&P is still negative by half a percent, the Nasdaq's down 1.5% today. And big tech, as you might guess, is underperforming the broader market. The XLK Tech ETF having its worst day in over a year, down 2.5%. It's not just Apple, which is down 3.6%. We'll talk more about that in a bit. We have Meta and Microsoft in the red as well. And semiconductors having their worst day since October, with every component of the SMH trading in negative territory today. All of them with AMD and Intel, the worst performers. Intel's down 4%, AMD 5.5%, even NVIDIA giving up about 3% today. Meanwhile, Tesla's numbers for the year are in, and the company managed to beat expectations on deliveries, even as fewer of its models will qualify for government incentives going forward. The shares are slightly uh, lower. Shares of Rivian, though, are plunging 10% after fourth quarter deliveries fell from the prior period. Let's get out to Phil Lebeau to break it all down for us. Phil, some consequential developments here. They are consequential, uh, Kelly, but given the fact that you saw the run-up that we did, both with Rivian as well as the other EV makers in the last six weeks, I'm not surprised we see a little bit of a sell-off today. Let's start first off with Tesla. These were better-than-expected numbers for the fourth quarter, both in terms of production as well as delivery. The company producing 495,000 vehicles in the fourth quarter, delivering basically 484,000 vehicles, a little over that. The full-year deliveries, by the way, coming in better than the company's guidance that they said at 1.8 million vehicles. For the year, they deliver 1.81 million. That's an increase of 38% compared to all of 2022. We will get more sense of what happened in terms of the all-important profit margin for these vehicle deliveries. That will come on uh, January 24th, basically three weeks from today, after the bell. That's when we will get the fourth quarter results from Tesla. We'll hear from Elon Musk at that time. Now let's shift gears to Rivian. And for Rivian, the, the numbers in terms of production, much better than expected. The company's guidance was to produce at least 54,000 vehicles this year. They produced more than 57,000. Deliveries roughly in line with expectations, just under 14,000. The street was expecting 14,000. And as you take a look at the increase in deliveries year over year over year, you might be saying to yourself, look, this is steady. Why are people selling this stock the way they are today? Well, part of it is because you're going to see some lumpier results from Rivian in the second and third quarters as the company adjusts production, which they 
they've already talked about. We'll get the full year res uh, results as well as their guidance for 2024 uh, deliveries. That'll be coming up February 21st. And Kelly, also keep in mind that with the change in the EV tax incentives from the federal government, not all vehicles that did qualify in 23 now qualify in 24. Some do, but not all of them. And as a result, the concern on the street is how much of the demand was pulled forward and how many people might be sitting there saying, you know what, I'm going to hold off on buying an EV until I think that that credit will be, uh, you know, put back on for a particular vehicle once they have the battery sourcing down. That's going to make it interesting to see what we get in terms of results in the first quarter. Yeah, and I'm looking through it here. It looks like Rivian might qualify, uh, you know, the, the SUV and the truck for some incentives. Yep. Uh, a lot of Teslas still do. Although, why doesn't, am I correct that the Cybertruck does not qualify? Why is that? Well, I think mainly it's the sourcing on the, uh, on the battery cells and a few other things. But that, they expect those things to change over the course of the year. Mm. And that's how it's going to be, not just with Tesla, but with all of the EV companies. There's a little bit of uncertainty about how quickly they can make sure the sourcing is in place for all of their vehicles. And that's going to take some time. And same thing for Tesla, if they're losing some qualifications for the long-range Model 3, things like that. Do you think that's a yeah, sourcing issue? Yeah, the long-range Model a 3. Is, is that also sourcing? That's or a sourcing if, issue. If they all sell of enough these are, at some point. Uh, Kelly, all yeah. of these are sourcing issues. All of these in terms of battery components, the manufacturing, what percentage are manufactured in North America or in countries where we have friendly free trade agreements. What, what we're seeing is the federal government saying, we want you to break away from the supply chain being reliant on China. And while a lot of companies have made moves, Tesla's made moves to do that, you, you can't break the entire supply chain Overnight, and it's taking some time, and that's what we're going to see here, especially in the first half of this year. But they, they might requalify at some point this year or in the near Correct. future? Yep. Interesting. Absolutely, and we will see that with all of the automakers where you'll see an announcement, we now qualify. All right. I know it's a big $7,500. It's a biggie for all of them. Phil, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Our Phil Lebeau reporting. You bet. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. A Hamas official told NBC News that a senior leader was killed today in a drone strike outside of Beirut, Lebanon. Lebanese state media reported that the Israeli military was responsible for the attack, targeting a Hamas office, killing six and injuring others. The IDF has not yet commented on the strike, as is often their practice. Police reported an armed man broke into the building housing the Colorado Supreme Court and opened fire before surrendering to authorities. Officials said the building suffered significant and extensive damage. Authorities say they don't believe, don't believe, the incident is linked to previous threats made to the state's Supreme Court justices. And the president of Harvard University is resigning. Claudine Gay's resignation comes six months and two days into her presidency, marking the shortest tenure in the university's history. The move follows allegations of plagiarism and her December testimony before Congress, which raised doubts about her ability to respond to anti-Semitism in the campus area of Harvard. Wow. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, wow. thank you. Yeah. Tyler Matheson, I'll see you shortly. Coming up, don't hold your breath for any Fed rate cuts until after June, according to my next guest. We'll ask him why and talk about the challenges facing smaller banks that could force some of them into M&A. Former Wells Fargo CEO Dick Kovacevic after the break. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. The yield on the 10-year briefly above 4% today. That's a big jump from being under 3.8% just last week. That said, the banks are a relative bright spot. The KBW Bank Index up about a percent. And the big banks start reporting next week with B of A, J.P. Morgan, Citi, and Wells Fargo, Fargo all out with earnings on Friday. What should we expect? Let's ask Dick Kovacevic. He's the former chairman and CEO of Wells Fargo. It's good to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. It seems as though the big guys, uh, for the most part, are holding in there. But what about the smaller banks? Well, there are some smaller banks that are having uh, difficulties, and I think that will continue. Uh, the reason is, is that they used to have quite a few depositors that uh, were over $250,000 uninsured, and they felt comfortable. The, the, the customers felt comfortable with that. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Uh, <laughs> no one wants to put more than $250,000 in their small bank, particularly. Uh, they're also suffering from the fact that their securities portfolio has, is underwater because of uh, the increase in interest rates. So um, they may have to raise more capital in order to uh, uh, offset these issues. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, some of them may have to sell their bank as a result of this. Well, and sell their bank. I mean, that's a, we've kind of been waiting for a lot more of this activity over the past year. And I've been struck in a number of discussions we've had here about commercial real estate with players who are on the front lines. They keep referencing the fact that the small banks have disappeared from the scene. And you just wonder what that means in terms of their earnings power. Well, it's going to affect them. Uh, I think in the smaller banks area, you, you do have commercial real estate issues. But in general, these are uh, 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 they, they, their loans are to uh, local companies who have not suffered as a result of, of stay-at-home uh, working. You know, so I think uh, we may not see the same level of commercial real estate issues that, that larger banks have, where you are uh, in larger areas where uh, people are working more at home. Yeah. I want to ask you about the big call. I don't know if you saw him this morning, but Mike Mayo was talking about how he thinks shares of Citigroup can triple in the next three years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, do you want to I'm not you know, listen? I don't know if you want to comment about City directly, but um, I'm going to ask you to. What, what do you make about a about a call like that? <laughs> uh, that's a little more than I would expect. But I do think uh, not only City, but all big banks are in a good position. Uh, the uh, and and have uh, very good uh, dividend yields, and I think they have more to run. I think the biggest risk that the that the big banks have is that the Fed uh, causes them to need much more capital than they need. I don't think the big banks need any more uh, capital than they already have relative to their risk, uh, and so we'll see how all this plays out. But uh, that's, I think, the greatest risk is not the, the, the business risk as such. It's the regulatory risk. Hmm. And uh, I think it's very unfortunate because I think what's happening is that the Fed is trying to hide the fact that they did not uh, see the risk that almost everybody else saw in the spring uh, from uh, the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and so on. And they're trying to make, uh, blame that issue on not having enough capital when, in fact, it was a, uh, a mistake by the regulators, a huge mistake that they didn't do their job right. So, you know, I've heard other people make that plays out. 
That that's echoes. I've heard exactly the same uh, critique from a few others as well who have been banking executives for a long time, and they are a little bit frustrated that that's what's going on. And I don't mean to misspeak, by the way. Uh, Mike Mayo said he thought the shares could double, not triple. But in any case, it's a huge increase in the kind of environment that we're talking about. And I guess, Dick, just to, to kind of step back for a second, is this the outcome that you think is good for the country? If I can ask it this way, and maybe it is, right? Maybe to have five or six or whatever the number is, mega banks that nobody has to question uh, the security of their money, and that's the whole game. I mean, but here we are. Whatever people intended 15 years ago, here we are. Well, uh, you do need large banks. Uh, large banks uh, are international in, 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 in their uh, business, or, or many of them are, as their customers are. So you can't uh, Provide the loans that these that these companies need and and the places they need them without being large. That's just the facts. Let's just take Canada for example. Canada basically has seven large banks that uh, I don't know what percentage it is, but it's like ninety percent right. of the entire country uh, for similar reasons. So uh, uh, you know, I don't see any reason. I don't see any negatives to large banks other than if they don't behave. Uh, appropriately. Or I, I think it's ironic as well that even as they've gotten bigger, now some of them have been good performers, obviously good stewards of capital, J.P. Morgan comes to mind, but others like City have not. And so it's ironic that is they have, I guess, almost become utility-like, you know, capped upsides, capped downsides. I don't know if we call them value traps because some are not, but others, many others are. Well, I think a lot of people thought they were value traps. Uh, I was not one of them. Uh, I, I've been uh, thinking that the, that they've been undervalued for a long period of time. Uh, their uh, their PE ratios are 40 percent uh, uh, lower than the uh, industry uh, or, or the uh, the market, and and yet their yields, uh, dividend yields, are 200 percent, 300 percent higher. Than the market, so I think they've been undervalued. I don't think it's a, a trap. Some of them had work to do uh, to do to be better, and it took them perhaps longer than somebody than someone expected. But several of them, and you know, we can talk about J.P. Morgan and others, have done very, very well, and they're still, in my opinion, undervalued. Interesting, and I think they're they're still room to run. So. so uh, Quick final comment in that regard, then, for those at home who, you know, they'd love to to be in the right ones. What would your advice be on that front? Well, I, you know, uh, I have my own favorites, but I don't think that's what's important. I, I really think that that uh, all the large, even the large regional banks, are in uh, a good shape. Uh, they they have the capital. Uh, they're uh, not. Excuse me. Uh, they're uh, uh, they're not at risk. You can have a particular bank that may need more capital, but the industry itself doesn't. And I think the market has been wrong uh, until about the last two months uh, that that they were somehow uh, not going to grow and not do well. And uh, that happens. And you can understand some of the reasons for that, but it's been a mistake. And those of us who have been investing in it uh, uh, saw that uh, opportunity, and you're seeing it now in the in the marketplace. And as you say, still more opportunity uh, given where I things think so. are. Absolutely, Dick. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your perspective today.
Okay, thanks, Kelly. Dick Kovacevic, and we'll hear from banks starting next week. Coming up, it's not just iPhone sales slowing at Apple, according to Barclays. They downgraded the shares to underweight today and see as much as 20% downside ahead. Apple's 3% drop today alone, shaving 55 points or so off the NASDAQ 100. We'll dig into the headwinds next on The Exchange. A rare downgrade of Apple today with the shares down nearly 4% now. Barclays concerned about iPhone demand, and that's not their only worry. Steve Kovac is here to dig into that report in today's edition of Tech Check. It's kind of ruined the whole market. Today. Yeah, that's right. It's down nearly 4%. And even when this report first came out, it was only down like 1.8% or wow. so. But look, it's, it's the same themes that we've been talking about for the last several months now around Apple as they struggle to return to that top line growth. iPhone demand just not there, especially in those most important markets. They point to China, especially new competition from Huawei, all those reports we get about government agencies potentially blocking the iPhone. And then also on the services side, which is supposed to be this kind of shining beacon that could help them return to growth. Uh, Barclays really pointing out some you know, negative headwinds ahead, including these regulatory concerns, the DOJ case against Google. You might be wondering, what does Google have to do with Apple? Well, Google pays Apple billions every year to be that default search engine. That's at risk. Regulations in Europe, another risk point. So they point to all of this as a downside. To you, do they give the granularity around how much the iPhone selling in China, or is this you, most of the things we've been talking about should already have been priced into the shares? Like we said, it's been going on for yeah. months. What do you think was the newest information here? There was another thing they talked about about the mix of iPhones. So it's not just about the unit sales; it's which iPhone models people are buying. Those the Pro versions more expensive, better margins, and so forth. Uh, this report is also saying people are kind of trading down to the, the cheaper models, the regular hmm. iPhone 15 models. That's part of it as well. It's not just you know going out there and buying a phone. It's which phone are you buying? And the more expensive ones seem to be don't have enough juice. And even worse than that, or, or even more troubling, uh, in this report is the iPhone 16, which isn't even out yet. They, they're saying, you know, kind of going against what our friend Dan Ives always says at Webbush that you know there's we're due for a big upgrade cycle. Barclays saying the opposite, that this could be another lackluster year for the iPhone um, following the 15. And I, I remember when we, we just had to get one last fall, the incentives were so much bigger than I expected. I didn't know if that pointed mm. to a weakness in demand. And maybe it tells you all that. Remind me the name of the, the headset again. Vision Pro. Vision. I can never remember. Vision Pro, $3,500. <laughs> That's all you're going to be talking about in a few months. Vision so. Pro, Vision yes. Pro. Maybe, again, this becomes kind of their 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 saving grace. Right. And what, to your point about the deals, those still exist. But those are more about the carriers trying to get you to switch over from from, you know, T-Mobile to Verizon or, or what have you. That's less about, you know, phone demand versus, you know. Uh, we weren't switching. That was the thing. Yeah, they, that's know? how they, but they so want you to stay. They don't want they you want to switch you to, to the other guy. That's, I mean, every commercial, get a free phone, you know, trade in your old one. That's that's all part of the game. You're right. Well, still interesting to see the market's reaction yeah. to this. And it's taken everyone down with them. Only the fourth analyst on the street, I believe, with the sell rating. Right. And it's so. um, down to 160. So, I mean, I think it's trading at 185 or so now. That's, that's pretty down. And if it goes to that level, then we could could see Microsoft surpass it in market cap, they are, and that is one to they watch. They are very close. I think I just checked before we came on air. $2.75 trillion for Microsoft, $2.8 or so for wow. Apple. There, we could see a flip-flop pretty soon. That would be a big way to yeah. kick off the year. Steve, thank you. Thank you. Steve Kovac. Coming up, today's moves are threatening to wipe out gains made in the last five trading days of 2023. And Wolf's Chris Senek says don't believe the recent melt-up. The number one Fed signal he's watching, and it's not the dots. He joins us next. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks closed out 2023 on an eight-week win streak, that momentum not fully carrying into the first day of this year. Wolf Research's Chris Senek doesn't believe in the melt-up. He's laid out numerous warning signs for equities in his latest note. Topping the watch list is what he calls a huge and underappreciated catalyst, Fed liquidity, which he expects to decline. Next up, performance chasing for 2023's top stocks, the likes of Coinbase, NVIDIA, Meta, Royal Caribbean, Uber. He also flags uh, that all major U.S. equity markets still look overbought in the near term. And finally, the lack of fear. The VIX well below its average, currently just over 13, and nine-month futures are also at multi-year lows. Joining me now to discuss is Wolf's chief investment strategist, Chris Senek. Chris, it's good to see you. And, you know, we're all on one side of the boat here. Um, and you're saying don't, don't go over there. It's going to tip over there. Yeah, hi, Kelly. Happy New Year, and thanks for having me on. Um, so we obviously had a very epic melt-up uh, into year-end, and, and we kind of told investors at that point in time to play the seasonal trade. But as we enter the, the new year, uh, the market is overbought on on many signals, whether you look at relative strength or MACD or some other technical indicators. Um, investors overown technology stocks as a sector, and some of the key variables that drove stocks higher in 23 uh, namely, Fed liquidity to us don't seem to be uh, present. In fact, maybe going in the other direction in, in 2024. So we're not believers in the sustainability of the rally. Um, and actually today's performance in sectors and themes and, and styles, I think, is being much more indicative of at least uh, what we're going to see in the first half of this year. And you think the key you know, your number one here is Fed liquidity. And, and it, some have pointed out, uh, Dan Greenhouse and others, it's pretty ironic. They did all those rate hikes, you know, sucked all, you know, did all that QT and the market did what it did last year. Yeah, so the, the Fed balance sheet for quantitative tightening has, has been falling on the asset side. But what's happened is a lot of money market funds parked money at the Fed. And it gets a little wonky uh, parking money at the Fed overnight. But they did that. And then they started to pull their money out of the Fed overnight facility uh, to invest in T-bills and longer duration uh, fixed income securities. And the effect of that actually adds liquidity to the system. So there's an old saying, you kind of follow the money. Well, um, following the money in 2023 you know, led to higher stock prices because liquidity uh, measured by bank reserves at the Fed increased $450 billion. Hmm. That to us is unsustainable uh, in 2024 because of some of those very forces that help liquidity are going to go in the other direction. And would you say that's the most important thing to watch then, kind of those weekly levels for reverse repos, that kind of thing? By far, because when reverse repo levels uh, get to a level that no one knows what the magical number or, or thing will be, uh, re reach a more precarious level, it's lower than we are today. The running kind of normalizes about $830 uh, billion today, but when they get below $500 billion or $400 billion, um, there, there could be some tightness in the system. And um, I guess in a worst case scenario, if you will, if that's a word for it, uh, the Fed might have to end quantitative tightening right. um, in the second half of the year, uh, which could actually be weirdly a bullish signal for the for the markets because the balance sheet won't be shrinking at that point in time. Oh, one thousand percent. But I appreciate how you laid out kind of this is at the heart of, um, and then many other things could follow everything from the VIX and, and so forth if we see a reversal there. Uh, that's the top of the dashboard, Chris. We'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Chris Senek. As the market gives up its gains, by the way, that does it for the exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive. 
AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 